0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane
0: Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. So today we're going to be talking about the Federal Reserve with
1: Carl Smith, who is an economist and columnist of Bloomberg. And we'll get to that conversation in a second we wanted to do something a little unusual, have a little program note. In the discussion that's coming up, we talk a little bit about Steve Moore, who was one of Trump's nominees for the Federal Reserve Board. Subsequent to that recording, Mr. Moore withdrew his nomination for that post, which is not reflected in that recording. However, I I do think that the discussion Uh, not only in general, but even the stuff regarding more is still relevant for whoever gets nominated for the Fed as a replacement and, and, you know, just thoughts about where the Fed might be going in general. So just wanted to clear that up. If you're listening and you're like, why do these guys not know that Steve Moore's withdrawn? Well, that's the that's the magic of podcasting for you. The topic for today is the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. I wanna give a, a note of reassurance to our listeners. I'm sure all of our listeners have heard of monetary policy, in the Federal <laughs> Reserve. They know it's important. They might not uh, necessarily be able to explain in depth what the Fed is and, and all that sort of stuff and, but it, it, it is important. Let's start with a, a little basic and then we'll we'll ramp into some more discussion. So what is the Fed and what is its job?
2: So the Fed does two things. So first of all, they're like the regulator. Of uh, the banking system in the United States, and their job is to make sure that it doesn 't crash that we don 't have major crashes like the one we did in the Great Depression the one we did in two thousand and eight, so their job is to help prevent that but on like a sort of year to year basis, the most important thing they do is they, they decide how much money is printed in the economy, and uh, that actually turns out to be like hugely important for economic growth. This is like one of the major discoveries of uh, of macroeconomics is that When there's more money printed, at least temporarily, uh, the economy will speed up. And when there's less money printed, at least temporarily, the economy will slow down. Over time, when you print more money, that turns into inflation. And when you print less money, inflation either goes down or you can even get into deflation if you decrease the amount of money out that's outstanding. But in the very short run, what happens is growth either speeds up or slows down. And so that means that the Fed has sort of two jobs. One is to, in the long run, keep inflation steady, and then in the short run, keep the economy from falling too far down or too far up.
1: You mentioned that one of the Fed's jobs was to prevent crashes like the Great Depression or the financial crisis, of 2008. Now, the Fed was around for both of those though, right?
2: It was. It was. So, uh, I mean, some people have questioned how good they are at that job, but I think the the relevant comparison is um, before that, we had pants fairly regularly. So in uh, eighteen ninety. Eight, we had like a massive panic, a uh, worldwide panic that was probably on the scale of um, the one in 2008 uh, from what seemed like relatively small, like economic movements in France. Um, we had panics before then. So overall, the, the number of panics, sort of like the regularity of them has sort of decreased. And now we have one every 75 years. Before then, we had one maybe every 15 years, 20 years or so. So at least on that scale, they, they seem to be doing a better job, although they're not nearly a perfect job.
1: And, and there also have been problems with inflation. If you think the crash is perhaps them airing too far in in one direction with employment or whatever there, there's also been some cases where like the 1970s inflation was really high and that caused its own problems I, I don't you know I, I don't want to be too critical of the fed but you know there's a lot of room for improvement I think you could say
2: yeah we, we and we can be critical I mean uh <laughs> I think that's fine I mean um, part one of the things that I'm pushing now is that uh even economists should be a little bit more open to being critical of the fed for Probably at least 30 or 40 years, as long as I've been a macroeconomist, there's been a sentiment that we should be defensive of the Fed, that we should protect it from um, anyone who would either disparage it or, you know, possibly allow it to fall under, you know, more direct control of the president or congress so it would be like an independent institution primarily run by economists but i think that consensus is breaking down that like the fed has made a number of big mistakes uh it may be in the process of making another big mistake that's you know something we can talk about um and that maybe we should we should open to criticize so yeah i'm right about inflation in the 70s um one of the big criticisms is that before the 1970s there was never a like sustained long and period of inflation like that we'd have like like short periods of inflation and followed by deflation, but but overall, like for long long periods of time, like over a hundred years, prices stayed relatively stable in the long term. That wasn't the case during the seventies. We had uh year after year after year uh, of hard inflation and we've never we never saw that before the Fed was created. So there's definitely that room to be critical, even though I mean I'm still a macroeconomist, so on some level I'm still like like deeply defensive, but I think we should be open to to talking about things that have gone wrong.
1: This issue has been in the news recently because you know there are two vacancies on the Fed board and the Trump administration has nominated Steve Moore and then he nominated Herman Kane for the other spot and Herman Kane withdrew I guess because he says because
2: doesn't pay enough
1: <laughs> he found out that if, yeah right if he if he uh, got on the Fed board then he would have to stop doing Paid promotional advertisements for powdered peanut butter or something, something like that. I uh, would be remiss if I didn't add that your name, Carl, has been floated as a possible nominee for the other open spot. So I, I don't know if President Trump listens to this program. If he does, uh, you should probably consider this as kind of a quasi job interview. So, you know, one of the big disputes that's out there is is the Fed raising interest rates? too quickly now was it not aggressive enough in the wake of the financial crisis is that partly why the recovery was so slow uh and perhaps why trump won the election in the first place not that it's the job of the fed to see that one candidate or another gets elected or re-elected but so what is your perspective yeah on, so on first that?
2: i'll like connect people to what we said before so i said the fed like controls how much money there is in the economy so it turns out in addition to you know altering the speed of economic growth. When there's less money in the economy, interest rates go up. And when there's more money in the economy, interest rates go down, all else being equal. And so the way the Fed talks about monetary policy, the way they conduct it on a day-to-day basis is by raising and lowering interest rates. And that corresponds to how much money they're putting out in the economy. But what they talk about and what policy people talk about are interest rates. And so the question is, are they raising interest rates too fast? Um, I've thought that since the crisis happened, the Fed has been too eager to raise interest rates. Um, that's been part of why the recovery has been so long and so, uh, so slow. Uh, for people who track this sort of thing, that can sound confusing because we've had, we had a very long period where interest rates were near zero. Um, and so you could say, well, why, you know, isn't that evidence that they were willing to let interest rates go really low for a long time? What makes the Fed tricky and what makes the, what the Fed does tricky is that a lot of it is about expectations and what the Fed sort of signals to the market it's willing to do. And that entire time it signaled to the market that as soon as the economy had recovered and as soon as inflation picked up, they were going to raise rates. And the irony is, is that very signal can make investors skittish. Uh, they can make companies skittish from hiring that can prolong the sort of depression or just prolong the period of economic weakness, which then itself can make interest rates low for a long period of time. So not having an aggressive enough what we call stance or signaling that, you know, we're willing to tolerate higher levels of inflation, we want to see the economy grow fast, we're not going to choke it off when it happens, can cause the economy to grow faster because investors have more confidence, because businesses are more willing to hire workers, and that can have the economy pick up faster. So my position was they had a stance that wasn't aggressive enough, that was too willing to raise rates ever since the, the Great Depression happened. And in the last couple of years, they've sort of made good on that. And so we've had the economy uh, clearly start to recover. Inflation kind of pick up a little bit and they went to raising rates, even though ever since the Great De- the Great Recession happened, we haven't had inflation rise above 2%, which is their official target. Their official target is for it to be 2%, inflation to be 2% every year. We haven't had it rise above 2% for a single year. That time has been below the, the whole time. It looks like it's going to be below again this year and relatively below, yet they're still raising rates. And so I think that's a mistake. I think that they have been signaling that that was their attitude the whole time, and that indeed has kept economic growth lower than it needs to be.
1: Yeah, you did have a weird situation for a while where, you know, whenever bad economic news came out, you know, say there was a a jobs report that didn't look good or a sluggish GDP to report or whatever, the stock market would go up. And by contrast, when you had good numbers, the stock market would go down. And I, I guess the idea behind that was people were thinking, well, if the economy looks like it's improving, that means the Fed is going to hike rates. And so you had this kind of like weird expectations game like you were talking about.
2: Yes, yeah, exactly right. and that's ex- That sort of thing is perfect evidence for the fact that we're in an expectations trap. So essentially the stock market thought there's a speed limit on growth. And so when they saw good news, when they saw that we were speeding up. They're like, we're about to hit the speed limit and things are going to get worse. And so that sort of tells you that the belief the Fed was putting out there was that they weren't going to tolerate growth above a certain level. And that's not in that situation we want to see. We want to see that like good news is good news. The good news (laughs) helps stocks go up. The good news makes people um, more willing to invest, more willing to hire workers. And that wasn't the case for, you know, at least probably the the eight years after the great recession.
0: So, um, Apart from the, the possibility of you being named as one of the uh, nominees, I kind of want to get your impression on the, the nominations of Stephen Moore, as well as uh, Herman Cain. I realize Herman Cain has withdrawn his name, but there was a lot of pushback, particularly with Cain, but also with Stephen Moore. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the politics of that, but then also the substance of Stephen Moore's background and what you think he might bring to the table if he were, uh, if he were confirmed? OK, so there, there are two things, I think, going on. Um,
2: number one is that for a long time, the Fed has been sort of dominated either by um, economists or uh, professionals from Wall Street, from like major Wall Street investment banks. And the sort of cadre of economists and, and financiers want to keep it that way. And they wanted to keep it that way because they were worried that people without that background and without that expertise uh, would not be able to handle like major financial crises. Um, some of that I think is is a legitimate worry. I think some of it is uh, just raw elitism. Um, about not wanting new ideas in some of it is the same sort of like defensiveness or protectiveness that I talked about in the beginning that you know economists had just agreed, especially macroeconomists, that we just weren't going to allow outsiders to like criticize our cherished institutions. Um, and so one thing that like uh, nominating Stephen Moore and Herman Cain, who don't have, uh, who are neither one of them economists and neither one of them have been financiers, did um, was upset that was upset people's sentiment about um, outsiders being in upset some people's fear that there would be sufficient expertise to handle a crisis um, and broke sort of the the understanding that the, the Fed would be run by economists and financiers. So that's part of it. Um, another part of it that I think is a deeper concern is the idea that Trump was nominating people who would just be willing to do his bidding uh, regardless of what was best for the economy. And so in the very beginning, we said that like when the Fed increases the money supply, which is the same as lowering interest rates, in the short run, that improves economic growth, but in the longer run, that causes inflation. And so that sets up a dilemma, which is that whatever government is in power is always more concerned about what happens right now than they are concerned about what happens in the future. And so you'd think that if like the president was directly controlling the Fed, he would always push more economic growth now, even if that caused lots and lots of inflation in the future. Um, some tellings of what happened during the 1970s was essentially that the Fed chief then, uh, Arthur Burns, was too beholden to Richard Nixon, and Nixon wanted there to be faster growth, and so Burns kept pushing the economy forward despite the fact that inflation was building and building and building. Um, that's not quite my understanding. My understanding is, uh, I think of the period of being a lot more complex than that. I don't know if we know, I could probably explain on a podcast, but, but that basic worry is legitimate. Like we've seen that, especially like in South America, um, in countries where, uh, the, the government has needed economic growth to be a big boost. And so the central bank there has just pushed money out, lowered interest rates to unsustainable levels, even though that produce uh, inflation in the long run. And so to the extent that Moore and Cain were just going to do Trump's spitting, there was fear. I mean, you know, Trump is a very opportunistic kind of guy uh, that he would be more willing even than most presidents to push economic growth, to get himself reelected, even if that caused like inflation or other problems in the long term. So I think that worry, that second worry that, he, that they were going to be too controlled by the president um, just caused basically everybody in the in the business community kind of flip out um <laughs> and and so we, we've seen a lot of that
1: let me let me uh throw out what i think is perhaps a unique uh or you know counterintuitive argument in favor of this that i have seen put out there which is that as you say one of the worries with these nominations is that these are folks who wouldn't be responsible but they would just try and boost economic g- growth in the short term even if the risk of more inflation later. But as you noted, you know, we've been in a period of very low, of below target inflation for a while now. And there's a theory out there. I think Paul Krugman, the economist, Nobel Prize winner, New York Times columnist, professor, he he has a theory that sometimes, you know, when you're in a situation like this, you need to be able to credibly promise to be irresponsible, right? You know, because you have to say, you know, that, you know, we're going to keep rates low even after things get better. You know, we're just going to keep it going even if inflation's getting hot. And if you are like kind of a, uh, you know, a a lot of the current people that are in the Fed, the way you get into the Fed is being by, you know, the paragon of responsibility. So it's just not credible if, if someone like Ben Bernanke or, uh. Or Jerome Powell or Janet Yellen or whoever says that they're going to do that, but if you get in someone like Steve Moore or Herman Cain, maybe it is credible, and maybe that's what you need in order to get things back to normal.
2: So uh, I think it's not it's not crazy. Part of what you're identifying there is this this sort of deep problem that the Fed has, which is that partially because they've been so protected um, by the economics establishment, uh, partially because they're Fairly insulated, um, even inside of the economics establishment, the the economists at the Fed are fairly insulated from uh, what happens on, you know, from other economists on the outside. Uh, that sort of they've become a hierarchy that's obsessed with uh, their perception of responsibility, which is never letting the '70s happen again. So that was we talked about that. That was an obvious and clear failing on their part. No one disputes that. And so, um, and so what's happened inside of the fed is they have economists and they have, you know, bureaucrats who are completely dedicated to never letting that happen again, never letting even the perception that that could happen, you know, get, uh, get out of control. And that has led them to like, basically make the opposite mistake, which is to be too tight all the time. And the only way to like, Crack that up is to throw in somebody who's a little bit crazy, and so here here's an interesting thing is that like for an academic for you know um an economist, Ben Bernanke was actually on the radical side of things. he was somebody who was really critical of Japan when they went through a similar thing, so for people who are real monetary policy nerds out there, Japan was the first country in the world to have this like Persistent problem of low growth and low uh, inflation, and seemingly the central bank couldn't do anything about it. And Ben Bernanke wrote a slew of academic articles, basically blaming the central bank of Japan for that, saying that they lacked the courage to act, that they were suffering from self-induced paralysis. Um, And so the fact that Ben Bernanke was chairman of the Fed when the crisis happened caused a lot of economists to think, "Oh, this is perfect. This is great. This is this is the guy who can deal with this situation." but he wasn't. And, and seemingly, there's a lot of talk about what happened, and the Fed's secretive, so we don't completely know. But seemingly, he was essentially uh, captured by the internal politics of the Fed. Um, that, you know, even though he was chairman, he had to get consensus of the rest of the Fed board. Um, the way the Fed works is that the Fed board depends a lot on the, the economists who work in the Fed. Um, all of those people were extremely conservative, were extremely against any radical measures, and they slowly sort of like broke Bernanke down. And so that that's created the perception that, well, how can you like break out of this if they were able to like take Bernanke down? <laughs> how can you break out of this? And so one radical thing is, well, we could just put some real nuts on there and then <laughs> and then see who wouldn't listen to what the economists told them, who wouldn't care about tradition, and uh, and that would break out. Um, immediately, even I'm somewhat nervous about that type of strategy. But I have to say, from a theoretical point of view, um, like you said, it's just crazy enough
0: to work. I wanted to ask you too about Stephen Morse, since he's still in the running. Maybe you can break down his specific background and his specific policy views, if you will. What would he bring to the table, and how would it differ from, the, you know, the the vacancies? Whoever was in these spots before. What might be different if you look to uh, Stephen Stephen Moore?
2: Oh, so I mean, that's 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 such an interesting question. Um, so Moore has been, um, I guess you know to politely describe it, um, a Republican economic operative, um, for at least since the '80s, maybe before that, uh, but I think I think he started in the '1980s. Um, who has pushed essentially whatever. The current, like GOP or GOP nominees, uh, economic line was, and so for a long time um, throughout the '80s and I guess into the '90s and even 2000s, that was a standard sort of like free market, free market line. Um, As we got into the 2000s, there was, uh, or the mid 2000s, I guess, after the Great Recession, there was a huge sort of backlash against the Obama administration that led to like uh, sharp criticism of the Fed. So Moore became a a really harsh critic and said that the Fed actually was being too aggressive and that they should return to something like the gold standard. That became the line for a while. then when Trump became when Trump was elected, Moore completely switched again and switched to that the Fed should be even more aggressive because they're not supporting the president's agenda. And so as as far as you could you could tell, uh, there there doesn't seem to be like a um a hardcore of 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 an economic philosophy that, that Moore has beyond like just supporting whatever the current sort of like GOP line is. Um, so, so that's radically different. I mean, I think I'm trying to think of exactly who was in the spot that he would be up for, but if you say somebody who recently vacated, vacated, Stanley Fisher, um, was, uh, a macroeconomist for, you know, decades who had very well developed views about what, about how inflation was generated, um, and was very predictable. He was a little bit, uh a a little bit less aggressive than janet yellen but you could sort of predict where he was going to be um more is totally different in that right now he seems to be um in favor of growth but like if the politics changed uh he could change um instantly with it so that would be that would be radically different and i guess i would say probably the biggest danger in my mind to like the strategy of letting somebody crazy like moron is um say that uh Bernie Sanders, or somebody is elected in um, 2020, there's a chance that then he would completely switch to being again, really uh, anti-growth, basically because he didn't like Bernie and he didn't like any of Bernie's policies. And that kind of effect would be doubly bad because then you would have not only a lack of expertise and responsibility, but someone who's like actively trying to sabotage the U.S. economy because they don't like the the current administration. So I think that's like the the, the super danger. And I think in my in my in my columns, why I, I said ultimately, like you can't you can't actually sort of support these guys, even though the Fed does need a need a better uh, need a big change. Um, supporting these guys is it's just it's just a little bit nuts. And and the Fed the Senate should shy away from that. And the president should withdraw the nomination. So
1: let's switch gears for a minute. Uh, let's talk about tax cuts. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed in the final days of 2017. I believe you were supportive of that. And it's been about a year now. We just had tax day. I had to send off a big check, which uh, in theory is supposed to be good because it means that they weren't holding my money interest free for a year. But it doesn't feel that way when you send the check. We're about a year on now. What's your assessment of how the tax reform bill is is working out and shaking out?
2: There were two things that I hoped would happen. And my analysis was a, was a little bit different than I think than most economists. Most economists focused on, um, or most of the GOP economists focused on the supply side effects. I thought there would be important demand and supply side effects. Um, so the demand side effects have gone pretty well. And so what I mean by that is like in the short term, when the government cuts taxes, it acts just like the Fed sort of putting more money out into the economy. So it serves as a short term boost. Um, and that's happened. So the economy has grown faster than um, we was predicted when the Trump administration started. Um, it's hit growth rates that, uh, people thought would be unrealistic. So it's been around 3%, where most economists thought that it would have to average around 1%. Uh, And that's been because of this sort of short-term like demand boost. And I I think that's been good. And the reason that I was for it at the time is because I thought that the Fed was being overly cautious and would continue to be overly cautious and that they essentially needed an assist um, from the, from central government from federal government if we were going to break out of um the sort of pattern if we were going to have like a a really hot job market that would be able to encourage people who maybe had been out of jobs for years who had their skills you know degraded who maybe had problems with opioids or other things to get back into the market um to come and get jobs and for employers to be brave enough to sort of like take a chance on those people. And I think that to, to a lot of extent has happened, that we've had a very hot economy over this period despite, you know, what the what the Fed has done despite them them raising interest rates. Um and I think That also has put us in a position where, unlike Europe right now, we're not as vulnerable to recession. So the entire world is feeling sort of recessionary pressures. There's a a tendency for all the countries to go into recession. And that happens. The world economies are sort of integrated and coordinated. And so when one part of the world goes into recession, it tends to drag the rest. Um, We're feeling that. Europe's feeling that. Uh, China's feeling that. But we're feeling it less than europe and less than china and part of that is because of the the short-term boost that we got from from the tax cuts um the other side of it was that it was supposed to have a long-term increase in economic growth because it would encourage more investment in the economy and so if there's more if there's more investment in like technology or training or anything that, that helps workers be more productive, then that's gonna raise economic growth over time simply because the amount of stuff we're able to produce is more. So it's not just that like people are going out and buying more, it's that the, the fundamental productive capacity of the economy has grown. Um, we haven't seen as much of that as as we would have liked. Uh, and there's, there's debate on like why that is. Some people think that like, you know, taxes just don't matter that much. Um, I'm I'm open I'm open to that view although I don't you know that's not my that's not my baseline view Um, I think that we've seen like other things have offset the taxes for example uh, we've seen trade war. That's happened. Um, We've seen like a lot of uncertainty from the president's economic policies uh, in general, and so I think that sort of offset the tax cuts a little bit. So we can see that like we had like a kind of like a a little bit of a shift up in investment sort of just after the tax cut, but then it sort of waned off, sort of stopped doing that. And I, I think part of that was because we've had like this uncertainty from trade policy and from other from other types of policies and investment. Is it's sensitive? I mean, it's one reason I think it's sensitive to taxes because it's sensitive to all those things. It's sensitive to whether trade policy is going to go this way or another. It's also sensitive to whether or not there's going to be like a near term recession. So, like, the more likely there is to be a near term recession, the more likely people are to hold off investment uh, so they won't be stuck with all this investment when there's nobody wants to buy what they're producing. Um, so, there are lots of factors that go in uh, all the time. And it it looks to me like there's certainly been enough negatives to like outweigh the. Um, the positives that we thought we were going to see from the tax cut but at the end of the day i mean there there's no escaping the fact that the proponents of the tax cut myself in, included hoped that we would see investment grow and we haven't seen that so the the possibility is that we were just
0: completely wrong well you've you've touched on a lot of this but just give us your big picture overview of where we are in the economy in general we just we just had a an interesting uh, we, we closed out the the first quarter, and the the reports I thought were interesting. It was generally positive, but I think that based on your tweets, I think you saw some of the uh, discouraging signs as well. Can you break down sort of where we are after the the first quarter reports, and sort of where where it looks like we're heading in the for the remainder of the year?
2: Yeah, so we had a really good first quarter. So we were at three point two percent, and like I said, the you know. Two years ago or three years ago, economists thought about 1%, a little bit over 1% was basically what we could expect um, from here going out, uh, and so 3% was a was a great number. But um, a lot of that was from things that we don't expect to keep going, so for one thing we had like a, a big boost from exports. Um, exports and imports are really volatile part of growth. Uh, they go up and down. A lot. And so just because you have like one good quarter of exports doesn't mean that the next quarter is going to be so good. Um, we had another like large boost from like what we call inventory expansion. And so just the way GDP is calculated, um, if a company makes something, even if they don't sell it right away, if it goes on the shelves, so they like stock up the shelves more, that counts as like extra, that counts as more production in the economy. But one thing that you can predict, and this would make sense, is that like, if the number of inventories we have of how full the shelves are rises, then that, that's actually discourages companies from producing more the next quarter, because they already have a lot of stuff to sell. And so one of the things that we saw um, in the first quarter was a lot of inventory building. So it was, the shelves got stocked fuller. Uh, both of those things mean that um, the quarters going forward are probably gonna be gonna be worse. And if we look at sort of like the sort of underlying underlying sort of demand for US goods and services, it's pretty low and it's it's falling. And I think that it's falling because we had a boost from the tax cuts, but that's starting to wane. Um, it's falling because the international situation is negative. It's negative for most countries. It's a little bit better for us than it is for, say, Europe, but it's still negative for us. Um, and it's falling because uh, interest rates, I think, have risen more than, more than they should. And so all those things together, I think, mean that we're probably going to see slower growth for the rest of this year, um, I think, you know economists are like in this sort of guessing game about like whether the United States will see a recession like like we expect to happen in parts of Europe. um I think that you know it's maybe not quite fifty fifty on that, but like the there's there's a real possibility that that could happen, so we'll we'll definitely see a slowdown in the rest of the year. and the end of this year, the beginning of of twenty twenty there's some chance that we're at risk for recession. We'll have to, to see as we go forward, but there, there are a lot of signs that like we, we could be dragged down if, if the, uh, the Fed doesn't like, react
0: and react soon. I've got a, a follow-up question on the on the exports. Uh, and if mm-hmm. I'm completely off base, we're gonna just completely edit this part out. But I, I recall that earlier, and I, I, think, I think this may have been the February numbers as opposed to the, the full quarter, a, sort of a big surge in the export numbers were related to airline exports aircraft exports. Is that correct? And if that is correct, is that a sign to be concerned that's where our export growth is?
2: Yeah. So one of the major exports for the United States is airplanes. That's one of our major exports. And it is really volatile with time. And in particular, right now, uh, Boeing has had some major disasters. Boeing is our major aircraft exporter to the rest of the world. And so we should expect that exports are going to be weaker from this point on because we're going to have uh, less growth in uh, airplane exports. So that's another factor that's going to contribute to GDP turning around in the second quarter and the third quarter is that we're going to have negative growth from airplane exports.
1: Okay, final question, and I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball here. But So the new Avengers movie is out. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, so no spoilers. But what we do know from the end of the last movie is that at the end of the last movie, Thanos wipes out half of humanity, uh, half of all the living beings in the galaxy, actually. So on planet Earth, the population in an instant goes from, you know, say, 7 billion to 3.5 billion. Now, assuming that were to happen, what would be the appropriate monetary policy response from the Fed? You know, would they need to to, to cut rates uh, or raise them because there's there's more money than there are people now. What do you think about that?
2: Ah, uh, so uh, that's actually a really interesting challenge. So, so what you what you probably consider that is a massive supply shock. Um, but um, even though it's a, a horrible event, it's a, a one-time supply shock. So the way we would handle that is we call look through it, um, and that would mean that like just because that event happened we probably wouldn't raise or lower rates. We would expect a huge surge um, in inflation, just like you said, because you now they're like half the people in the same amount of money. So prices roughly speaking would double, um, but you know, our standard thing is you, there's not much you can do about that. And you should just sort of like let that happen now. On top of that, there's just sort of like the massive like human tragedy <laughs> that's just happened. That's probably going to be extremely depressing to like everyone who's left, um, and extremely disruptive <laughs> to uh, to every sort of business uh, that's still remaining. Um, and so, because of that aftermath, uh, almost certainly you're going to have to to cut rates because a, a massive event like that is going to cause. Uh, Like a depression even below like a half, so obviously right immediately the economy drops by half. But like even worse than that, because everybody who's left is going to be psychologically depressed, and all of their like relationships and businesses are going to be like torn asunder uh, by this having happened. And so the way to deal with the aftermath is that you would have to have extremely loose policy, and actually probably right now you know we would hit zero lower bound immediately, and it would be you know a full-on like economic crisis. Uh, So. That's that's probably what you have to do is lower as fast as you can, then do quantitative easing or whatever the policy you can to keep uh, to keep the disaster mitigated.
1: Okay. So, you know, I'll just say uh, I am prepared to endorse your Fed nomination if for no other reason than you are clearly prepared for any eventuality up to and including the, you know, sudden uh, vanishing of half the world's population because gets the infinity gauntlet. So. Well,
2: I appreciate that. That's you know, yeah. I think that's I think that's what I have to offer is you know, quick thinking. All
1: right, right, yeah, that's what the Fed is all about. Quick yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, our guest today has been Carl Smith. Carl, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.